podcasting with Kerry Jones. Hi guys, and welcome to this week's podcast. This week's guest is the Gilly on the Mount Juliet Estate in Kilkenny. He talks of the River Noor and the story of how he got into the job at only the age of 15. He is also a qualified Apagai single hand casting instructor and gives demonstrations around the country at various shows. An interesting guy to chat with and with a few stories to tell. Welcome to my chat with Dan O'Neill. Thanks very much for joining me, Dan. You're welcome. Um, like we were saying, we kind of tried to, to can it for a little while now and different things happened and, and that. But we got, we got here and we're here anyway, so that's the, that's the main thing. It was, yeah. Well, how was your season last year? Yeah, the season was... Um, yeah, we, ha- we had a good season. We had an okay season. Uh, salmon-wise, I suppose, it was slightly disappointing. We met perfect conditions kind of April, May, June and they just weren't there but we, we did get some early on and kind of to the maybe late mid to late August we got a few and then a lot of rain came in and kind of put the river out out of we'll say being fishable for probably the month of September you know. Yeah well for listeners who don't know when we talk in the river now you're talking about the, the river no because um, you're the, the gilly on the Mount Juliet estate, yeah? That's right, yeah. So that's kind of where I suppose it's... There was there was a couple of different times fishing kind of took off for me a little bit. And I suppose the, the very first... Well, that was probably the second was starting in Mount Juliet. I started in Mount Juliet when I was 14. Um, guiding when I was 14. I was bringing different people out from everywhere. But I was from the country and I hadn't really, like, got in Gorn and... I hadn't really heard an American voice before, only on telly. So I was kind of half fascinated. <laughs> the first people I was bringing, they had this American voice, and I was absolutely fascinated. And nature was a huge part of my life. And I remember talking to them and, and, and saying to the people, do you have eagles where you're from? And they're like, yeah, we see eagles all the time. And I was absolutely, like the biggest thing I've seen was probably a, a rook or maybe a heron yeah. maybe down the river or something. But yeah. yeah, I was always kind of, I was just fascinated by that. And, uh, then it just it grew a little bit more. I, I started taking kind of more of a hand on the fishery as as I got a little bit older and, and started building my knowledge, I suppose, you know. I mean, I got some strange looks. You know, I, I often had my old manager, Matt Bulger. You know, Matt would organise the book and, and we would meet in the fishing room in the manor house. And I would, you know, the, Matt would be talking to the, the two guests and they say, oh, here's your gilly now. And this 14-year-old comes down with like a ghillie bag turned over his shoulder, a pair of waders that were probably three times too big for me, a, a, a fly rod, like, and they're kind of looking going, oh, God, here we go. But they weren't long about listening to you when you went down there and you got a couple of trout or you brought them to a place and you kind of explained the river a, a little bit, you know. So that, that was, it was, a, it was good. It was a nice way to start, you know. How did you get the, the job, you can say, at 14? Yeah, so um, really when I was, I was probably maybe 13, just turning 14, perhaps. And my mom 
was working there and she got me a job as linen porter. So my duties were to bring it, linen on different floors so that the, the staff that were making the bedrooms or whatever didn't have to carry them. So I was up and down doing the donkey work. But I um, I remember one day I was in the basement is where the linen room was. So I was down in the basement loading up the bags and there were those horrible kind of um, woven threaded black bags and they really used to skin your knuckles. Nice. I remember carrying it down this big long corridor and the corridor could not be any longer. The worst thing you could do is look up because you could see the door and it seemed like it was 10 miles away. So the best thing to do was just look down and you'd eventually get there. So I was looking down, arched over, carrying this big heavy bag, got to the bottom of the stairs, went to go up them and on the second step, there was a fly stuck in the carpet. So I was looking and thought, hmm, I know that fly. So I dropped the bag took the fly out and it was a barbed hook so it took a little bit of doing but I got it out and the fishing room was about I don't know it was maybe halfway down the corridor so I walked back and I gave a little tap on the door and Matt the fisheries manager was there so I walked in and I said uh, sorry excuse me Matt I found this on the, the carpet it's a fly it's a bloody butcher <laughs> and the minute I said bloody butcher he turned around and he looked over his glasses at me and he said how do you know what that is and I said, um, oh, I, I do a lot of fishing with my dad. And he said, oh, right, okay. Uh, th- thanks very much. Thanks very much, young man. He said, just just leave it there on the on the mantelpiece. I'll I'll get it later on. He said, it could be a lucky one. Right, fair enough. So I went off about my duties anyway. And about, I'd say maybe a week or two weeks later, I was going home. And I always used to go out the back door of the manor house because you had to walk by the front of the manor house then and you could look at the river. So I always used to be looking down at the river as I was walking past. Yeah. And as I was walking along the front, Matt was pacing up and down with a, a an, an old phone, like red brick, a huge big thing. Yeah. And uh, he was poking and pressing buttons. I don't really think he knew what he was doing with it. But anyway, he thought he was talking to someone. But I said, uh, Matt, are you okay? And he goes, uh, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm actually being let down now. Guy was meant to be down here. Uh, Gilly's meant to come down and bring a gentleman fishing. He's standing down there at the bottom of the hill. And he said, there's no sign he won't answer his phone. I can't get him. And I said, I'll take him. And he said, uh, would you be able? I said, yeah, no problem. I'll go down there now and I'll take him. What do I need? And he said, well, he has all his stuff. He said, just go inside and throw a pair of hip waders on you and see that bag. He said, bring that with you. So I did anyway. Throw on the stuff, went down the hill and said, hi, Chris was the man's name. I'm not sure of his second name. But I went down and said, hi, Chris, how are you? And he said, very well. I said, my name is Dan. And um, I was talking to Matt and he asked me to, to gilly for you. And he said, uh, oh, perfect. He said, come on in here beside me. So now I was only there to put a net under a, a fish. That that was it. He didn't need any help from me. He was a very experienced angler. And as luck would have it, I suppose, he hit a, a fish about 12 pounds. Now, it was absolutely, I had no input whatsoever into him catching that, that fish. That was all him. But I did net it successfully, thankfully. And um, there's been times since now where I've, I haven't been, great with the net but in this particular everything went right but the salmon was tired come up mid-side I was able to net the fish everything went well Matt was delighted and from there then it's, it just took off that bloody butcher was a, a lucky fly for you then yeah it was like I mean talk about luck you know I mean I could go down there now to the same place 10 times 15 20 times a season and you wouldn't have a hope or, you know you, you just wouldn't get a fish it was just absolute and utter luck that I was passing that way um, looked at Matt sent me down or agreed to allow me to, to go down and guide for the man and just 
absolute luck that that man met that salmon that day, yeah. It was all meant to be, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was. Yeah, so, it was. It was. It was good. Yeah. It was. It was great. It worked out very well. Yeah. So what happened then? Did you keep working with the linen, or did you automatically said, "Right, do you want a job?" Or did that come later? Yeah. So <clears throat> when I was probably, I think I was about seventeen, and Matt passed away, and I took over. Well, when Matt passed, I took over the fishing and the bookings and and different bits. I was very, very young. Um, I mean, I, I had, it's not that I didn't have the interest. I didn't have the experience. Um, I, and what I probably would have done is I would have put myself off fishing or put myself off ever going down that road of being a fisheries manager, a guide or a ghillie because I would have had some bad experiences because I just didn't have the knowledge back then, you know, because it wasn't just about fishing. There was far more to it. So they had agreed that just for a little while, I would take over and I did for about five months until they found someone else. And I suppose <clears throat> now the man they, they found was, he was a lovely man. He's a gentleman, an absolute gentleman. Um, but what disappointed me was the day I met him, I met him just outside the fishing room and we shook hands and I said, look, you know, I'm, I'm working later on. I have someone out, but I'll bring you fishing tomorrow and we'll go for a cast together. And he said, well, there's no real point. He said, I've never fished in my life. And it was a little bit of a, because Matt, you know, he was a fisherman. His whole family were fishermen. Yeah. And even some of the records in Mount Juliet go back to 1900, 1920. And Matt's, like, dad's dad was in it. You know, so it he had, it was a history. And it just, it was kind of a break. And it, made, it kind of upset me a little bit, you know. And, I mean, I went away then when I was probably 18, touching 19. And I'd done an apprenticeship um, in Plumman. And then... I probably, when I'd done that and finished, I went back to Mount Juliet one day for dinner um, with my, now who's my wife, we went back for dinner and there, I knew two or three of the staff were still there. I kind of knew them and they were talking to me and this guy approached me and said, are you are you Dan? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and he said, hi, my name is, is Des. And I said, oh, hi, hi Des, how are you? I'm very well, he said. Um, listen, you wouldn't mind coming back down next week, he said, and just having a, a meeting with me, will you? Uh, would you? I, ju- I just, I'd like to, um, I'd like to talk to you about the fishing here. He said, I kind of look after it a little bit now, um, and I'd like to talk to you about it. I said, yeah, no problem. So I went back down that the following week, and the same thing happened as had happened when I was 14. I ended up um, starting to guide there. Again, they asked me to come back and start guiding and, and everything else, and um, then I... Yeah, yeah, I was guiding then, and then Des eventually moved on to better things in in this on the estate, and I kind of stepped up then to take over what he was doing, which was the managing the fishing, and I do all the reservations now and talk to the guests. So even at the moment, even this evening, actually, I was talking to a guy from America who was coming over in April to fish, and you know I'm able to kind of talk to him and say. You can expect this, you can expect that, this is where we're fishing. And I think it really adds to the experience that the person is going to have by really building it up, you know, and just saying, look, this is what you can expect. And any questions you have, asked me, and he's asking me about this pattern and that pattern, and he's sending me pictures of flies and stuff. And it builds a friendship, and I think that's yeah, important. And that's why I, want. I, I remember you saying the name Des. I do remember him because I have been a few times to uh, Mount Juliet. Uh, not for a few years now. So is he still there? 
Dez, yeah. He's so he's um, he's like the historian now. Uh, right. So he goes around the estate and he he gives tours and I mean he is an absolute wealth of knowledge and it I can learn a lot from Des because the way he talks to people and he interacts with people and he gets people's attention is just second. I wish I could do it, especially with my kids. Wish I could get their attention like that. But anyway, um, yeah, he he's just the way he does it is is absolutely unbelievable and he's just one of those people. You you obviously you know these people too. There's like you know there's a certain few people that you listen to as a person or an angler and you learn off those people and it's just everything they say and the way they interact with you you take on everything they tell you yeah. you know and Des is one of those people you know yeah I, I do remember him well actually so how long you been there yeah. full time I've been in Mount Julius uh, let me see I don't want to make myself sound too old here now um, <laughs> I've given away enough already <laughs> so what uh, 18 years Oh really? Yeah. So between yeah, about eighteen years, yeah, um, and that's kind of there was a couple of years at the start, say fourteen to eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty. I then gone for three, and then twenty-one. Yeah, it would be. Yeah, it'd be a good, it'd be yeah. strong eighteen years. Yeah. You must have been yeah. around when I called in at some point there. Yeah. Look, maybe so. I was there for the tournaments, um, the Amex. Uh, I remember uh, fishing with Tiger Woods actually for the Amex. Um, and Darren Clark, Paul Carrington. I fished with a few of them now, golfers, which was kind of surreal because I was really young. And yeah. I think at the time, you know, like Tiger Woods was making, I mean, he was making headlines everywhere being able to hit a golf ball that far. And I remember watching him on telly and stuff and you're kind of standing beside him and you find yourself not wanting to, but you do stare, especially at that age. Yeah. You know, I'm kind of looking, staring at this fella going, like, is this really happening? Like, I nearly asked him to pinch me. You know, but yeah. I, anyway, it was just, it was unbelievable. But I tell you what you do realize, and something I realized, and it really, really helped me a lot in life, was they are only ordinary people that are very good at what they do. You know, they, they still have bad days. Um, they still have things they don't like. You know, they get annoyed, they get tormented. You know, and when you see them on the telly and stuff, and it's it paints a different picture than when you're standing with them in the river, you know? Yeah. I think when people talk about Mount Juliet, they think of two things. The main, before the fishing, actually, is the uh, the golf, and you've got that uh, the race horses. You've got a stud there, haven't you? Yeah. So the stud farm, Bally Lynch, is across the river. Um, so recently, well, not recently, a few years ago now, uh, Mount Juliet was sold, and the, the stud went was bought by a Canadian man, and the the estate itself then Mount Juliet side will say then was bought by an investment group uh, Tetra Capital so it, it it split now it was all one at one stage but now it's uh, it's separate now but you know you can still you can see the stud farm when you stand at the front I call it the front of the house many people yeah, call it the back but I, know what you mean, I call yeah. it the front because the river's there I mean if I had that house and I said I was picking which was the front it would definitely be the bit looking over the river yeah. it would be the front of the house yeah. you know so I call it the front, but it's just, uh, it's a special kind of a place, you know. Um, I've, I don't know, I just, even when you're you're walking there, I have so many stories from Mount Julian and things that have happened there for for me with fishing. Now, not, I'm not too deep, you know, I just mean like, you know, I was fishing one evening just for a quick one down at George's Wall, one of the, one of the beats, and I was fly fishing. And do you know that feeling you get when you know someone's watching you? Yeah. And 
I just thought there's someone watching, there's something here, something's looking at me. I don't know what the hell it is. I was wading down along the pool, I was wet fly fishing, and I just got that feeling, and I said, there's something watching me. And I just looked up, and at the top of the wall, there was brambles, and there was a slight dip. And as I looked in the slight dip, I could see these kind of, what looked like bare branches. They were kind of skinned back. It was a deer, a stag, standing really? there. Wow. And I, yeah, looking at me, watching me. And when I saw him then, he kind of let this whistle. The minute I, my eyes stopped on him, he let a whistle in the speaker. He let this whistle. Now, it absolutely never drained the blood out of me. When I heard I thought, I don't mind telling you now. Because, you know, sometimes I'd be fishing and I'd be walking back up the bank and one of the lads would have been fishing below me and, you know, he'd stand in behind the tree or something and I'm happy he'd step out just to find the life of me. And I thought that I thought that's what was going on. It's just when I was standing there, I looked up and I saw this stag and he whistled and looked at me and just turned his head and walked off as cool and calm as, as you like, you know. There wow. were just certain things like that. It's just yeah. special. It's, it's something that, you know, it's, you step in, you step into the river, I find you're, yeah. you're in a different world, you know, you just, you're gone from reality and you're, you're fishing, you know. I've had some lovely times there myself, but the first time I went, it was a bit of a disaster. Uh, there was a competition called the World Wide Trout Open. And uh, oh, yeah. they had it on the river, and it was in September time, and it was a washout. Absolutely, like the Ganges it was, you know. But that must yeah, have been yeah. about 20 years ago now. But yeah. it's, it's known for salmon fishing in the I know. But the, the trout fishing, is that is that pretty good as well then? Yeah, so <clears throat> I love the the trout is, is my main thing. That's mainly what I do is, is trout. And I absolutely love it for many different reasons. Um First of all, you know, in a hundred meter, if you take any hundred meter stretch of the or a hundred and fifty meter stretch, you know, you could nearly do two or three different applications of fly fishing. So you could do maybe dry fly, wet fly, dry dropper if you wanted to. You know, you could do any of those three things within that distance. And I like that. And it's handy for me and, and nice for me as a fishing guide, you know, when I bring someone down that we can switch all the time. You know, we can switch from wet fly or I'll bring a couple of different rods at me, a couple of different leaders, and I'm able to switch from wet fly to dry fly. And yeah. the trout in there are hard fighting, lovely colours. There's plenty of them. They can be tricky. Um, but look, we enjoy that. That's why we fish, you know. You had a good fish last year, you said, didn't you? I had a very good fish at George's Wall. Um, I actually thought it was a grilse um, when I when I hooked it. It was, uh, it was on a dry fly. And there's a, a kind of a small shelf and there's a couple of trees that just kind of jut out over the river slightly. And there was swarms of sedges in behind them. And I was fishing a, a dry. And there was one little place I was looking at in particular. And I was casting there and casting there and casting there. And the line went tight anyway. And I barely, I saw something, but I wasn't sure what. And I, I just lifted into it. And the first thing it done was turned and started swimming down the river. So I immediately asked thought and right okay this is a grill snow or something or I foul hooked the fish maybe I thought that's what was after happening and I fought it got it followed it down a little bit and eventually got it in and it was about it was I think it was just shy of three pounds nice nice that's yeah, great for a lovely, river lovely fish. fish yeah tell me yeah, there's something lovely. I've often wondered when when you're a, uh, the gilly of an estate and you get times where you get plenty of rain especially in Ireland you get days and days of it sometimes. What does your work entail then if you you can't take clients out? 
Yeah, so that's that's a brilliant question. Um, so as a guide, and this is great for people who are maybe thinking of getting into guiding and stuff, it's well and going down on a good day when the fish are taken, but you need to train yourself on days when the fish aren't taken. So I find myself, especially when the river's high, um, so I use a thing, hydrodata, so high for us would be anything from 0. 0.60 up. That would be high. So I would go down and I would try heavy nymphs on tight line nymphs and say 4.5 mils, 5 mils sometimes, 4 mil, and fish them under an indicator. So our streamers is brilliant as well. So I would go down, I would be confident fishing the river up to about 1.2, which is is four times higher than normal with us. So we'd be about 0.30. So I'd fish it up to point or 1.2, I'd fish it to so from 0.30 up to 1.2, I would get fish on the normal stretch. Um, any higher than that, and we go to the Tributary River just upstream, which is the King's River. Right. And the King would fish beautifully when the Nore is that high. Ah. So if a customer, a client rather, comes and books the Nore for a day and is too high, you would take him up the King's then, would you? Exactly, yeah, take him to the, the King's River then if it's over 1.2 or... Sometimes you'd have it like you would have a conversation with them and just say, look, you know, um, conditions aren't ideal. Maybe the river's high. Uh, we can try this spot or this spot. Or if you want, there's a tributary river just half a mile away. We can drive up to that and you can fish that there. It'll be more pleasurable. You know, like if you get a really experienced angler, they go down, they don't mind. But if you get beginners, you know, it's it's a little bit more tedious. And it depends how many of them there is, too. But I have the, a diary there, and it has all the different water heights and the pools that fish best, and ah, the water temperature. Yeah. So if I, you know, I can look at the hydrodata and it says 0. 0.62 and 15 degrees. Well, I, if I go back in the diary, I can see the patterns I used, where they worked, um, and what areas I fished. What well, would the salmon go up into the kings? They do, yeah. Um, they would. So our salmon. We would start getting salmon through the fishery probably once it hits 0.42. You'll find that the, the salmon would start coming through um, at about 0.42. Um, then the, the nor <clears throat> at times can rise really quickly and drop really quickly. And when that happens, when it goes from 0.42 down to maybe 0.30 or 0.3235 in around there, yeah. the salmon hold in the pools. Yeah, You'll get them holding in the pools the whole way down through um, the fishery waiting for more water yeah so waiting for a little bit more and they'll they'll move on up then yeah yeah so the stretch itself how long is the stretch for the the mount juliet and the rest of the club so we have two and a half miles of the nor and we have three quarters of a mile of the kings just where it joins so from the joinings we call it the joinings the the pool there so from there three quarters of a mile upstream uh, we have the, the fishing rates on that. And when does the season start there? So we're the 17th of March until the 30th of September. All right, so same as the lakes. Some of them opened earlier, yeah. didn't they? I wish it did, but unfortunately it doesn't. So how did it all start for you then? How did you get into fishing? Right, so, I mean, going back to the beginning, it was my dad. Um, he introduced me to, to fishing. He, um, I mean, he was... He was brilliant with me, in fairness, you know. Um, everything he done for me, and like I think back now, and the, the headaches I must have caused him, 
and the money I must have cost him with casting flies into trees and everything else. Um, but he, he always, you know, he always encouraged me. He always brought me. He never said no to me. But he didn't never ever force me. You know, he, he always just kind of let it be my idea that we go fishing. If he was going fishing, he'd say to me, uh, I'm going down dig worms, I'm going fishing. And I'd say, oh, can I come? Yeah, okay, come on. But he'd never, you know, he'd never force me to, to go or anything. But it's, you know, all the memories and everything that comes with it, as I, th- I think I said it to you there. You know, I, I always remember I would get up on a Saturday morning after being in school all week and the first thing you would smell when I got up was the shaving foam had a, a smell like a minty kind of a smell and a slight smell of old Hoburn the tobacco because oh, dad would yeah, always yeah. have a shave he would always have a shave and put a shirt on um, before he went fishing so he I could smell the the um, I could smell the old Hoburn the slight bit of smoke the, the after the um, shaving foam and then the aftershave as well was denim denim blue the aftershave and back then it was mega expensive back then I think it was something like 25 pounds I saw it last week and Mr. Price for two quid for the bottle and I actually bought a bottle no. because it, I can smell you know, sometimes I just put a little tiny bit on the because it's it wouldn't be great by today's standards now by uh, an aftershave but I put a tiny little bit on my collar sometimes you know just oh, and it, it's amazing how it, it brings you back you know but yeah it, it started there and we used to go to the River Barrow um, was our local river then so it was probably 10 minutes away in a place called Ballytide Lee which is on the Carlo Kilkenny border and we used to fish there for perch pike we used to fish as funny as that sounds so anything that came along we would take and then we had just down we used to fish the second weir we used to call it the second waterfall we used to say actually and we used to fish there but as it got near evening time we would go down to what dad used to call bubble way which was faster water where we used to put on the plastic bubble and some flies. Oh, right, yeah. And, and, and fish with those and, you know, cast out and reel back slowly. But, I mean, I lost a lot of them bubbles and flies because, you know, I was only young and, you know, and I was casting, I was letting the line go sometimes a bit quick and it would go up really high in the air and it'd catch a tree behind me and, it, you know, it'd snap off and different bits. But, you know, he never ever lost his, he never lost his patience with me, you know. Um, and he had every right to, I suppose, but he never ever lost his patience. And it it stood for me later on in angling, and it stands for me with Anthony too. You know, it's it's just learning. And if we catch one, we catch one. If we don't, we don't. But you know, let's have fun trying. You know. Did you get into fly fishing then? And did he fly fish as well? He didn't. Dad didn't really do too much fly fishing. But what really got me into it, I suppose, we were fishing one day down where I was uh, Bubble Way. I keep referring to it as Bubble Way. So we were fishing there at, at Double Way and um, I saw this guy walk down along and he, at the other side of the river and he got in and he started like using what I thought back then like, like a whip. And I was like, what's he doing? You know, how's... I said, look how thick his fly line is or his line is. I can see it from here. He'll never catch a fish. He must be using huge hooks to be able to put that fly line through the hook eye because I didn't know anything about leaders or any of that kind of stuff. I was only a young fella, you know. And um. I was looking at the loops and the, the line, the, the way the line was going in loops back and forward. And, and I thought, wow, look at that, you know. And eventually he caught a trout. And then he had another one a little bit later and then another one. And I was looking going, how how's he getting in? So I asked my dad about it and he explained as best he could about what he was doing. And about, I think it was that Christmas, actually, I had asked for a fly rat. It was a, 
Shakespeare something. Yeah. And I got it anyway. And I had no, um, like I didn't have any experience with fly. So I went out and started swinging this thing around. And I ended up in the end tying a stick onto the end of it and getting the dog to grab the stick and run off with it. And I would fight him in the garden. I'd have a fly around and <laughs> fighting this little carrier trying to get the other around, you know, and he would. And I just, it was the way the rod felt. And then I, I did try a little bit, but I came away from it a bit. But I suppose when I hit Mount Juliet at 14, 15, it was, Matt was kind of like, you know, if you're salmon fishing or you're trout fishing, you're going to use a fly. You're not yeah. using a bubble. Yeah. You're using a fly rod. That's it. And I was kind of pushed uh, down that route. And I taught myself for the little while I was there. But I remember one day I went on to the internet and I was looking at something or I looked at a demonstration or, something, or someone casting and I saw the word A-P-G-A-I, APGAI. And I was like, what the, what's APGAI? You know, I, I didn't know. And so I Googled it, APGAI. And it came up, you know, that it was an organization in Ireland. APGAI Ireland is an organization in Ireland. And, you know, they had a group of instructors and I was looking, I was really, really interested. So I downloaded the syllabus and I had a look at it and I thought, you know, I thought, I can do that. That's no problem. I'm able to do that. Um, and I thought I could until I went to a mentor and done a little bit of casting with him. And he wasn't long about telling me, uh, you have a lot to learn. And I did. I know he was very nice about it. But I I went down the app guy route then because there was a few reasons. One reason was people were paying an awful lot of money to fish with me um, to the hotel and, and me as well. And I wanted to make sure I was giving them the most they could. You know, I didn't want to be just like, gosh, look at the do. You know, I'm grand, I'm all right, I'm not. Like, I want to go and I want to learn different analogies to, to get through to someone and help them cast or help them to become a better caster. Or sometimes they just don't want to. And that's fine. That's perfectly fine too. If you want a couple of tips, I would have given them. That's um, the thing. It's, it's all well and good sometimes to be able to cast really well yourself. But to teach somebody, it's a different ball game. It's a t- to put your point across... And to get them yeah. to understand, it's not easy. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you're dead right. And what you what you actually said there about um, being able to cast and teach is it's different things. And you're right. And the guy, I, I still keep in touch with him. Um, hopefully, you'll hear it. So Pat Hughes in AppGuy, he's an advanced caster. Um, Pat was my assessor when I eventually did go and do my test, and he was showing me a few things later, and I done an exhibition with him in Belfast on Ireland on the Water Expo. I was up there with him. We were on a casting pond together and I was talking to him and he was very, very honest, but he had so many different ways of teaching someone. He had five different analogies for a forward cast or, you know, he had different ways of teaching people and getting through to you, but he had a really nice manner and a nice way of doing it. Yeah. And he said to me the very words you said, he said, it's well and good that you can cast like that, but can you teach it? And for a long time, I didn't know what he was talking about. Um, I, I, a little, I slightly kind of had an idea what he was on about, but not really and truly until I moved on a little bit further. And I realized, you know, there's no point in just learning one way to teach someone. You have to learn 10 different ways and you have to be able to talk to them and be nice about it. And, you know, just really, and that's the way, to be honest with you, I'm naturally like that anyway. I'm, I'm, I love teaching people to cast if they want to learn. And if they don't, that's fine. It's about getting a fly to the fish, you know. So 
the fish doesn't know who cast or what cast you used or oh, what rod you have or what line you're using. The fish doesn't know that, you know. Um, so it's about getting the fly. So some people are happy with the, the way they cast and it's perfectly fine. There's no problem. And some people would like to try something different and, and that's good too, you know. So you got your qualification for the single hand rod, yeah? Casting. I did, yeah. I got the um, the single handed qualification uh, a little while. Uh, no, it was a while ago now I, I got it. So I was delighted. I mean, um, to, you know, I, I grew up watching people casting on YouTube and different things and I always wanted to be able to do it you know and I remember the day I went up for my exam I drove up it was up in Banbridge Angling Centre up in up the north so I went up there went in nervous as hell um I wasn't half as nervous the day of my wedding to be honest with you um <laughs> which was a short time after and I remember going up and I was really nervous and I was just thinking like you know this qualification means so much to me. And it did, you know, because I looked there for so long. And this really means a lot to me that I get this. I have to do it. I can't go. I'm not leaving here unless I get this. And I went in and sat down first and done the theory side. So I had all the questions and different bits. I, I got that done and done my knots, the different knots I had to do. And my presentation, which I was worried about because I cannot stand the sound of my own voice. I hate it. You know, I, I was just really nervous. So I got through that and... Arthur and Arthur Greenwood and Trevor Green said to me, Dan, look, you've done really well. That's great. Your practical assessment is next outside. So I said, right, okay. I had a bit of a break, went outside, grabbed the rod, rod, excuse me, and it was really, um, really windy. So I went out, uh, started setting up the rod, straightened out the leaders, put on the the glasses, the wool tag, went out, um, introduced myself, spoke about the rod and done the first few casts and I had one guy standing down watching the distance at the end, one guy to my left watching the rod and my wrist and a guy behind me watching rod tracking. So I had three people watching the cast and to say my legs were like jelly um, would, would be an understatement. So again, it just meant so much to me. So I went back in anyway and there was another guy doing it and I had to wait till he finished. So I was in there for an hour waiting for the lads to come back to let me know and I remember sitting down and the three of them sat there and they welcomed me into the organisation and I just I just wanted to jump up and start shouting I was absolutely I could not <laughs> contain it um, because they, like I said I had so much respect for everyone that was there and the organisation and you know this I had to get this I had to have this you know this was the next step and I got it and it, since then I've met so many interesting people. I kept in touch with Pat Hughes and Pat texts me every now and again saying, uh, list every falls with the forward cast. And I'd be there texting like mad trying to get them up these 20 or 30 different falls that there might be or something, you know. But, you know, it was just, I was accepted into it. It was a great group of people. So it was definitely a huge step and it was, it was well worth doing. You know? Do you actually fish with a double-hander? Right. So the double-handed syllabus is on my this year. So I'm lucky enough, and I say lucky enough because I am very lucky to know Glenda Powell. Um, so Glenda, I met through App Guy, and Glenda came down to see me at the fishery, and we had a chat, and we ended up working with Cadence together um, as well. So Glenda came down one day to meet me, and Glenda, I had studied on my look for the syllabus as well. I was watching her casting and doing different things. Fascinated, she's a wonderful caster. So. 
her and Noel came down, Noel Fitzmaurice, and, you know, Noel is another lovely fella, you know. And the two of them came down anyway, we walked the fishery together, we were having a bit of a chat, and we'd done a small video together, we'd done a little bit of fishing, and Glenda was, um, she spoke to me, and she said, look, you know, she was talking about Cadence, and she said, I, I'd like to bring James Robbins down to meet you next week, if that's okay. And I said, yeah, yeah, of course. Just really mad to, because I wanted to meet Glenda and Noel again, you know, because I had a really good time with them on the river. Yeah. They came back down the week the week after with James Robbins, and we went into the same room. Um, I gave him the story about the bloody butcher, and I brought him through the the, the walk that I had oh, done. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, and we we sat down, and it was in the same room and the same place that I had sat with Matt. And I remember again, kind of being brought back to Atkoy a little bit with the suspense and the waiting. And she looked at James, and she said, "James, what do you think?" And James said, uh, "Yeah, definitely, yeah, yeah, definitely." So. Glenda said to me then, would you like to work with Cadence? Um, you know, and different. she went through the, the different bits and everything else. And again, it was just absolutely like, you know, I was talking to someone here that I had watched for a very long time and studied for a very long time and just thought that, you know, again, pinched me. Like, you know, I thought I was uh, thought I was dreaming. But she, yeah, so I've been working with Glenda. So a roundabout way of telling you that, um, double hander now. So I've done a little bit with Glenda and I'm doing a little bit of practicing so I'm hoping to get my uh, double-handed qualified cert this year so I'm nice. a little bit of double I think the double-handed casting and watching it done um, I've watched Glenda a few times it's absolutely like it's phenomenal like there's so a single-handed casting um, but it's just I really really like the double-handed rod and I think micro-spay fishing um, is going to it's something I'm going to do more of this year so there's the three four weights or the five six weights and seven eight and so on and so on but I think the four my, I love wet fly fishing so I think the the four five or the five six for wet fly fishing um, on the river would be perfect because I get a lot of people sometimes that come to me and they have shoulder problems or you know they have a bad wrist or casting tires and then hurts their back or whatever so I think that with this the, the micro spay it can make it that little bit easier for them to cast you know yeah and, and the north from what I remember it's a big river in places isn't it so I yeah, suppose a, right, double, yeah. a double hander would be beneficial to fishing it anyway yeah I, I definitely think so um, and like I said I can't wait now i done a little bit last year with it at the tail end of the season but this year now I'm going to start from March April I might do, do a little bit of streamer fishing or something as well um, with it but I, yeah I'm really looking forward to it so that was the other reason with the, the double hander I kind of want to go down the same route as that but I was with Glenda Saturday gone and just down at the, the Blackwater Salmon Fishery with her there and I was, I was talking to her and she was just showing me a few different things and you know it's just it really made me see the difference between you know Apgai Qualified and Apgai Advanced yeah. you know it just you know she was saying some things and you know it was like not that I knew them but you know she was going into kind of the psychology of teaching someone and what to do and just different things it just meant you know it was just absolutely because sometimes some people look at people that are teaching and doing things and think oh sure I can do that you know what's different I can do that but there's a lot more to it than just teaching someone how to oh, cast yeah 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 I suppose yeah, if someone comes to you it could be it could be anxious they could be a little bit nervous and it's yeah. up to you as a person or an instructor to pick up on that and make the, the, the learning place or the learning, say, area, as comfortable as possible for them yeah. so that they take on the information you're going to give them. 
it's a big thing for for people to come to you, isn't it? You know, you didn't appreciate that people are coming to you when they're nervous, and it's a, it's not something you do every day. I, I guess now you're with Cadence, you'll be doing some demonstration and shows, maybe, will you? Yeah, yeah. So on the twenty, the next one is the twenty seventh of this month. It's in Carysville. Um, we're doing a, a kind of a, a demonstration there. Uh, I'll be there. Glenda, Stevie Munn, James Robbins, and uh, probably some a couple of others as well. So we'll be down there doing a little bit with that, and then there's some over in England as well. And then of course there's the Irish Spring Anglin Fair in I think that's in April I think, but it could be on social media anyway to be advertised. That's in Ardair Springs, um, right. which is it's an, it's another wonderful fair. I was at the Irish Fly Fair as well uh, in November last year, and I done a demo. That was actually my first big demo uh, was at the Irish Fly Fair, and fair play and thanks very much to Stevie Munn for putting his trust in me to come up and do it because I was nervous. Um, I had rehearsed this and gone over it and I have the notes actually in a frame and put up beside the flight time desk at home. I wrote down all the notes and went through it and, you know, like people who had done it hundreds of times were like, ah, you'll be grand, don't worry. You'll be all right, don't worry about it. And I was like, right, okay. <laughs> but I think the, the funniest thing was and the, the thing that put my mind at ease the most was the morning of it, I went out because I was doing, instructing with that guy, try before you buy with Cadence and my demo was at three o'clock. That was it. And I was trying to practice. And I was just standing there with the app guy guys and I was talking to them. And I noticed Ian Gordon walking down towards the river. So um, I watched him and I seen what he was doing. I said, I better go down and say hello to him, you know. So I followed him down and, hi Ian, how are you? You know, how good, Earl? how are you? How are you keeping? And I said, I'm oh, good, I'm good. I'm good, yeah. And I said, uh, just doing a bit of casting. Yeah, I have a demo. He said, I just want to make sure I can still do it. Yeah. Now this is a world casting spay champion, and he's down there making sure he can still do it. I thought I was doing. I was up at eleven o'clock the night before on the grass outside, casting towards the streetlight to see if my leader was straightening out to remind yeah. myself I could do it. So that made me think that hey, listen, I'm not on my own here. Ian Gardner is doing it. I'll be fine. You know, he has to do things like that, and I'm doing it too. So he kind of put me at ease a little bit, and Glenda was brilliant you know she filled me full of confidence as well and yeah. i went up and i kind of remember my first word or sentence hi my name uh, hi i'm dan and after that i haven't a clue yeah what, what happened but everyone clapped at the end so it must have been good or they were trying to get rid of me one or the other, <laughs> <laughs> well there's something i want to bring up as well when we when we chatted in the week uh you told me a story which i've got to get you to tell again so what happened was, when I was younger, four or five, you know, uh, it, it wasn't like now where you have 200 different cartoons. You know, it was James Bond, Indiana Jones, or MacGyver. You know, they were the three guys, you know. And mine was James Bond. I uh, absolutely loved it, watched it. My dad used to kind of play around with me with James Bond. But I had a little um, Jack Russell Terrier, the same one that used to play fish for me when I was yeah, I got stick. my first fire. So uh, he was uh, he was the bad guy. So he was called Scum. So yeah, that was my my little Jack Russell got called Scum anyway. And I was James Bond, and I used to jump around outside and climb the trees, trying to get away from the bad guy who was the the terrier. And you know, I was just fascinated by James Bond in 007. And when uh, I got a call one day in Mount Juliet, many many years later, when I was maybe 15ish, maybe 16. I got a call and said, um, we have a VIP guest that 
wants to go fishing and are you available? And I said, yeah, yeah, no problem. So didn't think much of it, you know. And I remember walking up to reception. We used to meet the guests at reception at that time. I walked up to reception and the lady was there and I said, hi, how are you? I have a booking at 11 o'clock. Uh, yeah, do you know who it is? I said, no, sorry. Um, I was just told it was a VIP. They're staying in room 32. And oh, she said, no, your your guest is there. And she said, I can't stop looking at him. He's out there in the grass, sitting at a table having a cup of coffee. So I looked out and who was sitting there and he Pierce Brosnan. And I looked again and I said, is that Pierce Brosnan? And the lady says, uh, yeah. She said, have you been living under a rock for the last couple of days? He's been staying here for the last three days. And I said, oh, I, I, I don't know. Yeah. And is that who I'm taking fishing? And she said, yeah, that's who you're taking fishing. So now I just wanted to tell the whole world this. So at the time he was filming the, uh, I don't know which one it was, but it was one where he, the Aston Martin Vanquish had the guns that like came up out of the, the car, of the Vanquish, whatever yeah. one that was. Yeah, so um, he was fil- he was just finished filming that actually, and he was over to kind of relax and go fishing. So I took Pierce Brosnan and Sean Brosnan, his son, and uh, his girlfriend at the time, Sean's girlfriend at the time, and we went to the Noor for two days and we went to the Kings for a day. Um, so, you know, the story goes, uh, 007 was my childhood hero, you know, and then at 15 to turn around and fish with, at the time, 007 was, now that was unbelievable. But again, he was just a guy that was really good at what he does and he's so genuine and down to earth and spoke to me, what do you want to be when you're older? What would you like to do? You know, and just, you'll get there and all this kind of stuff, just positive stuff and real calm and cool and, and everything else. But it was just absolutely um, surreal. It was just unbelievable, you know. And did you get him into a fish? Oh, yeah, we got fish. <laughs> we had to make sure of it. He done well, actually. He went up, um, I think, on the second day we got rain. So the third day, the river was ever so slightly coloured with a bit of weed coming down. So we went up to the Kings and we fished the Kings uh, just after Giants there. And he had some lovely trout and he got some nice pictures and everyone was happy. So again, it was uh, luck or someone was looking wow. down on me, one or the other. And, uh, yeah. Later on, kind of in... In life, then I suppose I just kind of 007 kind of went out me me head a little bit, and I didn't really see much of him and and different bits, you know. But it's it just to go back again, like I said, it was just absolutely, um, yeah, it was a dream come true for a young fella anyway, just to to do something like that. And any stories I've heard about, he's been, you know, he's been nice and everything else, you know. Yeah, to have three days with him or something, you must have got to know him quite well then. Yeah, yeah, we like, and I suppose the other one is as well. My at the time, my mum was working in the Lady Helen, which is the restaurant yeah, uh, attached to the Manor, Manor House, and she um, she came home one day and she was uh, she gave me a big hug, you know. I said, "What are you doing?" And she said, "You won't believe what happened." And I said, uh, "What?" And she said, "Pierce was in for dinner." And I said, "Oh, he's Pierce now, is he?" <laughs> and, uh, yeah, she said, yeah, yeah, he's fierce. But she went up to him um, at the table to take his order because my man would have been kind of the longest member of staff serving at that time there. Right. So, you know, it's always the one sent out kind of thing to, to the VIP tables and that. So she went out and she said, uh, hello, Mr. Brosnan, um, can I take your order? And she said, and he said, uh, sorry, is your name Sharon? And ma'am said, yeah, you're Dan's mom. Yeah. Oh, Sharon, please call me Pierce. <laughs> and my mother said that, that she just nearly fainted 
uh, when he had said that, you know. So, yeah, she, she went up then. He, she was doing his room service and everything else in the morning time, bringing the tray up, taking his dinner, ended up dealing with him. But, yeah, so it was kind of, that was great for her as well. It was a nice memory for her too, you know. Yeah, I bet you meet quite a few people there or see them anyway, and whether or not they fish or not. I bet you get some, because it is probably the top, one of the top three hotels and estates in Ireland, I guess. So you're going to get some names there. It is, yeah. And it's a great place for um, with fishing because the river, like I said, I keep it to only 20, 25 members. And I mean, 10 of them are probably only active, really. You know, some t- some get down twice or three times a year. So it's never heavily fished. So it's kind of for people beginning and stuff. It's great because the fish in the pools, we take them aren't overly wary or anything. So they, they have a really good chance of, of getting a fish, you know. Um, and then, of course, there's that's kind of why I went off and just educated myself as much as I can when it comes to angling to be able to be helpful. And I went as well with, um, like, I, I gave myself kind of, I made a kind of a four or five year plan. And I ended up on the first year doing just nymphs and dry dropper. And I spent the whole season nymph dry. I wouldn't do any other method. And I went to various different people over Ireland and spoke to them about their setups, how they'd done it. I went and stewarded at as many competitions as I could um, to just to get the information and, and so I could make myself better. And I did. And then the second year, I'd done wet fly, and I ended up staying on wet fly for that year. And again, I just went to different people, um, spoke to people, tried to educate myself as best I could. And because I knew I'd eventually get there and I'd, I'd know enough, you know, I'm never going to learn it in one season. So at least when someone comes to you now, you know, you, you give them the best chance. I want to give them the best thing, the best experience I, I can possibly give them so that they get their first trout. Or the, You know, it's like yeah. me when I go to a different country and I go to fish, you know, I you go and to be honest with you, I don't really care whether I catch a big fish or a small fish. I don't care. But I would like to say, okay, I've been in such and such a place and I caught a fish. I don't really care how big the fish is. It doesn't matter to me. But I just like to say I caught one. And it's just, I see that then for the people here, you know, and like they come to me and I don't stop until they get one. And when they get one, then it's like someone has lifted 10 ton of bricks off your back yeah. when the first fish comes to the net. It's yeah. the best feeling in the world, you know? Yeah. I've done it myself. I've taken people guiding and you're just willing them to catch a fish. The, the pressure is so much on you, isn't it? You just want them to be happy and catch a fish. But going on to the river then, it, I thought it was just private for the hotel, but it's not. There's like a syndicate or a certain number of people. Like a, um, you, you can have a season ticket on the the river, is it? Yeah, so there's a membership then for um, either trout fishing or salmon fishing or both. And again, like I said, I kind of cap it at twenty, sometimes twenty five, depending, and just have them on it. But it's nice because it's a present as well. Um, the hotel wants a certain amount of that too that, you know, someone can stand on the bridge and take a picture of someone that's fly fishing with Mount Juliet House in the background. Yeah. You know, it's, it adds to the overall experience down there. So I can be down there and they have pheasants by raise and release, not for shooting now, they've just released. They're the best fed pheasants and they have the best life of the pheasant as long as they stay within Mount Juliet State boundaries. If they go outside of that, they need a the proof best on it. Yeah. So, you know, but... Once they stay inside, they're fine. So I release the pheasants and stuff. But again, it's only for guests to go there. They, you know, they want to go to the countryside. They want to be out in the countryside. Someone fly fishing. You know, sometimes we 
walk past it. And it's not that we don't see it, we do see it. But it's we're used to its beauty. And we end up thinking, I can see it again tomorrow. I, tomorrow, tomorrow, yeah. tomorrow. No. Whereas these people could be from New York City and it could be, you know, five years before they see someone casting a fly line again. And sometimes someone has never seen someone casting a fly line. You know, the reason they're fascinated by it. Well, I've enjoyed this chat and I've been looking forward yeah. to it for a while. I mean, I'm glad we eventually got it together. But before I wrap up, there's one more question, as usual, I ask. Where would you want to be to make your last cast? My last cast? Um, okay, so I suppose, first of all, the one thing I say to you is, as, as, before I go into it, I'm fierce for this. I just, sometimes I don't know when to shut up. But, um, <laughs> yeah, so really, I heard a story one time. A guy said to me, he said, you know, every goal you have in life is a ghost, right? So if you make six goals, you have six ghosts. And until you complete them, the goal, the ghost will follow. So I've stuck by that and I believe that. And as I make a goal, I have this vision in my head of a ghost following me around. So my last cast would be where my first cast was, um, definitely. And it would be with a bloody butcher. Um, so I would go down to, to Bubble Way, as my dad would call it, and I'd have my bubble, I'd have my bloody butcher, and I would have my cast, and I would hope to God that there's no ghost with me. I'd hope that I've passed all my, um, that I've got my double-handed syllabus, and I've passed all my goals, and I've done everything that I want to do with fishing. Um, so that, that would be my last cast. My last cast would be a bubble way where my very first cast was, and I would probably just sit there, have that cast on my feet over the bank, um, a packet of Warders Original, they're my favourite fishing sweets, and maybe a bottle of Coke as well, and just reminisce on my whole journey in on fishing and just go through everything. And I'd have a small little bit of uh, denim blue on my collar to remind me of waking up on those Saturday mornings and getting the, the slight smell of, of denim blue. So, yeah, I'd go back to where it all started again, like I said, and reminisce on everything. Many thanks, Dan. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to listen to more, please consider becoming a Patreon. We will get weekly podcasts and access to over 160 episodes, behind-the-scenes photography to go with each episode, plus other exclusive content and prizes. To become a Patreon, visit patreon.com forward slash castingwithkerryjones, or you can find the link on my website castingwithkerryjones.com. That's all for now. And tight lines, and may they always be up in the wave.